Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It is great to be together for Palm Sunday. It is great to be get together this spring as things start to warm up a little bit. And I especially am looking forward to Easter next week. That's going to be great. When I was younger, you know, there's these two, Christmas, two Christian holidays, Christmas and Easter. And when I was younger, Christmas was the big one because that's when we get presents. Right, kids? Yeah, every, yeah, everybody likes the presents. But as I've become a little older, they've sort of switched. And I really like Easter more than I like Christmas. And the deal with Easter is it's in the spring, and the earth has been dead, and everything has been dark. And what happens is all of a sudden, God starts to bring life out of death right in front of our eyes. And it's an amazing reminder of what God did for, did for Jesus Christ and is how Jesus Christ conquered the grave and he rose to new life. And that we too, what's going to happen to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ, that while when we die, our spirits go home to be with the Lord, our bodies stay in the grave. But when Jesus Christ returns and his voice, our very self-same bodies that we have right now, will be resurrected from the grave just like Jesus' body. It'll be reunited to our spirit, and ultimately we will live together with Jesus Christ. And what the Bible says is the new heavens and the new earth, where heaven and earth are combined. It's a physical, real place that is just like this planet, except all of sin and the effects of it have been stripped away. And our bodies don't get weak our bodies don't get sick, but they're characterized like Jesus Christ's body with health, vitality, and power. And all of this is what we look forward to because of Christ's resurrection. That is what we celebrate next week. Isn't this going to be great? Now, every time, a little assignment for you. This week when you go out there and you start to see the day lilies coming up and you see the grass coming up and all these things that are coming to life amidst death, remember... Jesus Christ who conquered the grave, and that you too, because of your faith in him, will conquer the grave too. Amen. This week, we're not on Easter. This week, we're still actually in the book of Genesis. We are on Genesis chapter 22, and we are studying Abraham. Uh, last week, we looked at Genesis 22, and we looked at the first 14 verses. This week, we're going to do something a little different. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to review those first 14 verses again. And why are we reviewing them? Because they are so important. And I want to make sure we just touch on the lessons that we learned. And also because they connect into the rest of the chapter. And you have to have the first part of the chapter down if you're going to understand the second part of the chapter. Second thing we're going to do is what we are going to do is we are going to look at the parallels between Isaac and Jesus Christ. When we began Genesis uh, months ago, uh, 22 messages ago, I had no idea that we'd fall on Isaac right before Easter. But here's what you need to see. The early church saw all kinds of parallels and foreshadowings with um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac and what Jesus went through in his final week on earth and ultimately his resurrection. It is really pretty cool. We're going to give you 10 parallels. 
Then lastly, what we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to finish Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to look at the last few verses in the chapter and get some take-homes on what Abraham teaches us about living by faith and by obedience to God's Word. So you guys ready to jump in? A lot of good stuff to cover. Let's look at the review. Lessons from Abraham's test. Take out your notes and let's go ahead and follow along. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, Abraham loved his son Isaac more than he loved life itself. He had waited for him 25 years after God promised him. Abraham was 100 years old when he finally got him. And then what did God do? Tested him. What do you love more? The son that is the apple of your eye or me? Did you ever realize that God does that for us? Sometimes he gives us a similar test, uh, one of these tests like he faced with Abraham, but in miniature. What is number one in your life? Something you love very dearly or me? Will you uh, obey my word or will you disobey my word? Let me give you some examples of what it may look like for us. For Abraham, what he loved more than life itself was his son. And for you, maybe what you love more than life itself is your, are your children. We all love our kids if we have them. And sometimes what happens is we love our kids so much that we get them involved in sports, we get them involved in all kinds of extracurricular activities, and sometimes we have them so involved and so over-programmed that what we totally neglect to do is spend any time bringing them to church, spend time uh, having the Bible open at home, spend time praying with them because we're so busy with all these other things that we don't actually do any God things with them. And God sometimes puts us in a test where all of a sudden we realize, what do you really love in your life? Your kids or me? What are you teaching your kids about what's important? Me or school or sports or achievement? He tests us. What's your first love? Another way it comes across. Maybe you're a young single, and as a young single, you're looking for Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and you meet somebody that you get along great with, but you notice that while you enjoy them personally, you're not too sure where they're at spiritually. I've always told you, you have to date and marry somebody who loves Jesus more than they love you. That's ever so important. And you start to say, well, God, I really get along with this person, but I don't think they love you like that much. God, can't we make this work? Can't I, like, bring them to church and missionary date them? Can't we somehow force this to work? That may be a test. A test of what is your true love. Do you love me and putting me first above all, all things? Or do you love your sex drive? and putting that first above all things. It's a test. In fact, uh, if you want to put a bullet point I put on your outlines, sometimes God tests our heart by forcing us to choose our greatest love. Expect that. 
God will force you to choose what is your greatest love, him or something else. The text continues. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. There was a number of lessons we looked at in this section last week, but I want to just pull out one very important one, and that was this, that Abraham obeyed God even when it didn't make sense. Abraham obeyed God even when it didn't make sense. Child sacrifice? God, I didn't think you were into that. Huh? God, you told me that I would have my descendants through Isaac. How do I have my descendants through Isaac, yet I also have to kill and sacrifice Isaac? I don't understand what you are doing, God. But here's the neat part. Abraham had finally learned that his job was to obey God. God's job was to take care of the results. He obeys God, and God will take care of the results. Obey God and obey His Word, even if it looks foolish, even if it is inconvenient, even if you can think of a million different reasons why you could change or should change God's Word. Obedience is our job. The results of obedience are God's job. In fact, nobody uh, necessarily always likes obeying God's Word because many times it seems foolish, doesn't it? But that is why the Bible says that we are a people that live by faith. Living by faith means that we trust God will take care of things. Even if it doesn't look like it's going to work out, we do what God's Word says. Let me give you some examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 talks about when we give and how we give an offering to God. We are to give generously. We are to give sacrificially. We are to give joyfully. And we are to give what is first and what is best to God. So you're going along, you're, you're giving regularly and you're offering to the Lord. And all of a sudden you get to one of those months where you start to realize that things are a little tight financially. And you think, I need to cut back somewhere in my lifestyle to make things work out. Well, what can often be the first thing, first thing to go? God, I, you, know, you know, I'm not going to give all this to you. I'm just going to hold it back for a while. But did you realize maybe that's a test? It's a test to God, from God, to obey His Word, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Obey His Word, even when you don't see how it will work out. To obey and give and give your offering first, and give what is best, and let God take care of you at the end of the month. Will you trust Him? 
Another example. The Bible talks in general that we should be ruthlessly honest in our business dealings. That we should deliver what we say we should deliver. That we should do our work with quality. We should do our work well. And you may have in your business competitors. And competitors that are cutting corners. Competitors that aren't necessarily keeping their word. Competitors that are using inferior quality. And you find that they're getting all the business because they're cheaper. But they're not necessarily people of your, their word. Or even worse, when you, you do the work, but something goes wrong, and it costs you money to make it right. And for you to make it right at the end of the job, you end up with a loss instead of a profit. Do you realize that those situations are tests? Tests. Will you obey God's word? Will you be ruthlessly honest in business, even though it doesn't seem to make any logical business sense? Because, number one, you're not going to get the jobs. Number two, you could actually lose money. Will you trust God to take care of you at the end of the day and be a ruthlessly honest man or woman who does excellent work for Jesus Christ? One more example. The Bible talks about how we should be people who forgive others like we have been forgiven by Jesus. Jesus forgives us again and again, all the time. In fact, Jesus forgives us for the same thing multiple times in a row, consistently. But then you end up in a relationship, or maybe, say, in a marriage, and your spouse sins against you, and they ask your forgiveness. And they sin against you again in the exact same way, and they ask your forgiveness. And a week later, they sin against you again in the exact same way, and they asked your forgiveness. And after a while, you're like, you know what? This is getting tiring. God, do I really have to keep forgiving them? It's a test. Will you obey God's word and forgive others like you've been forgiven by Jesus, forgiving again and again, even when it seems like you're going way beyond the call of duty? It's a test. Will you obey God's words even though they don't seem to make good logical sense? Here's a bullet point. Living by faith means we obey God's words even when they don't make sense. The text continued. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham, we learned, was about 130 years old when he went up this mountain. The Bible tells us he was still pretty spry for a 130-year-old guy, but this guy wasn't down at the YMCA pumping weights. Isaac, on the other hand, he looked like an NFL lineman. Now, why do I say that? He carried all of the wood of the burnt offering on his back up a mountain of which most likely animals could not climb. That sounds like some kind of extreme sports competitor to me. And this is not a little bit of wood. This is enough wood to take what would have been a sheep or an animal about this big and incinerate the whole thing to ashes. That is a lot of wood. Isaac is a stud, is what he is. True blue stud. Now, here's the thing. He gets on top of the mountain, and Abraham says to him, uh, You are the sacrifice, Isaac. Isaac could have easily defended himself against his father. Isaac could have easily overpowered his father, but Isaac did this. 
He submitted himself to the will of his Father even when he didn't understand his reasons or why he did it. Isaac submitted himself to his his father's will and way even though he didn't understand. In the same way that Abraham was submitting himself to his heavenly father's will and way and sacrificing his son even though he didn't understand. Do you see the theme there? It applies right across the board to us. We too are to sacrifice our will and way to our Heavenly Father. Even though we don't necessarily understand what He's doing when He brings problems and difficulties and challenges into our life. It's so easy to say, God, you messed up. God, you've got it all wrong. But no, God, I will submit myself to Your will, to Your way, and to what You're doing through my life, even though I don't understand what You're up to right now. And teenagers, it applies across to you as well. Will you submit yourself to your earthly father's will and your earthly father's way, even though he may ask you to do things that don't seem to make any good sense to you right now? Maybe your earthly father says to you, I'm concerned with what you're doing during your free time. and You need to change things. And here's what I want you to do. You can buck him. You can tell him he doesn't know what he's doing. Or you can submit like Isaac did to his earthly father. And this held out as a model to us. Your earthly father may say, I'm concerned about the people you're hanging out with. They're not a good influence on you. You can buck him. Submit to him, just like Isaac did to his father. Your earthly father may say, I'm concerned that you're staying out too late. Don't buck him. Submit to him, like Isaac did to his earthly father, like Abraham did to his heavenly father. We submit. Now, what is the bullet point? Submit to my earthly father's will and or my heavenly father's will even when I don't understand their reasons. Last part of the text to bring us up from where we ended last week. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. We looked at those verses from a couple different angles, but there was one special angle we focused in on at the very end of last week. And that is from the angle of Isaac. Remember, Isaac had grown up in the comfort of Gerar. Isaac had grown up in a place where it was easy and nice. He had heard stories about his father's faith, stories about how um, God had come to the rescue in trying circumstances, 
stories about how there were times when his dad had to trust God and God had come through. He had heard those stories, but he had never actually seen it happen. But on Mount Moriah, everything changed. It went from just stories and teaching to actually what Isaac experienced in his life. Let me show you. Isaac had heard about uh, Abraham's sometimes hard obedience when it was very difficult. But on top of Mount, Mount Moriah, he saw what it looked like for his father to do hard obedience when it was his father willing to sacrifice the son he loved more than life itself. He saw what it looked like through his own father's life. Number two, Isaac had probably never heard God's voice until on top of Mount Moriah, he heard God's voice saving his very life, stopping Abraham from descending the knife on his own son. Imagine that. The first time you hear God's voice and you realize that everything you've been taught isn't just academic stuff, it's just not Sunday school stuff, but God is real, is when God spoke Abraham's name to save your life. Never forget that. Your faith goes from theory to reality in those moments. He had heard from his father how God had miraculously provided in the past. But on Mount Moriah, he saw how God miraculously provided where there was a ram that was caught by its horns in the thicket in this random spot on top of the mountain just happened to be right where they were. How God had provided you see, what happened was, on Mount Moriah, Abraham's faith was passed to Isaac because Isaac saw the faith of his father lived out in his children. And here is the message we learned last week. Parents, God will put you through times of testing and times of trial not just for your good to grow you spiritually, but for the good of your own children, that your faith may be passed into their life. When your children see you on your knees praying and asking God to come to a rescue, and then God does come to the rescue in your life, when they see that, now they know that God is real. When they say you obeying God's word, even when it doesn't seem to make any logical sense, when they are older, they will say, I'm going to obey God's word just like my dad, even though it doesn't make any logical sense. Because I saw that God could be trusted in our home when God came through. My friends, God loves you and he loves your children too much to let you have a life of complete ease and comfort. You will face trials in your family. And one of the reasons God allows them into your family is so your children can see what it's like for you to walk with Christ and trust in Christ in the midst of those dark days. And your children will learn how to follow him in their dark days as they see it in you. 
If you want the bullet point that goes under there, it's this. God puts us in tests and trials to help pass our faith onto our children. That catches us up to where we were last week. Now, I told you that the early church loved Genesis chapter 22 because they saw all kinds of parallels between Christ and His final week on earth and His resurrection from the dead in the New Testament as there is parallels between Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 in the Old Testament. And they realized that God's plan for Christ was all scripted and shown beforehand back in Genesis 22. So let me show you how these parallels come out. There's, there's a number of them. I'm only going to give you 10 this morning. Um, how does Isaac's sacrifice foreshadow Christ's sacrifice? Number one, Isaac and Jesus both had births that were promised by God. Remember that Isaac, was, his birth was promised 25 years before in Genesis chapter 12. Jesus' birth was promised actually all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where the seed of the woman, singular, will crush Satan's head. <laughs> That's Jesus. Number two, Isaac and, both Isaac and Jesus had miraculous conceptions. Isaac was conceived to Sarah in her old age when she had already entered menopause, Jesus was conceived to Mary in her young age, when yet she was still a virgin. Do you see some interesting parallels? Isaac and Jesus both came from a place of tranquility to a place of brutal sacrifice. Isaac grew up, grew up in the place of tranquility called Gerar and ended up in a place of brutal sacrifice on top of Mount Moriah before God miraculously saved him at the last minute. Jesus came from heaven which is a place of peace and tranquility, until he ended up on Golgotha, where he died a brutal death in our place for our sin. Number four, both Isaac and Jesus were sacrificed on Mount Moriah. We saw this last week. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says that Solomon was to build the temple on top of Mount Moriah, which is the same mountain that Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed upon. And this is the same mountain, ultimately, that Jesus died upon. See some parallels? Both Isaac and Jesus took a three-day journey from death to life. Isaac, he was as good as dead when God says, time to go sacrifice him. And three days into that, on top of the mountain, at the very last moment, God ransomed him and rescued him back to life in the most unexpected time and place. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus wasn't as good as dead for three days. He was actually dead for three days. And at the last moment, when people least expected it, Jesus rose from the dead after three days. Isaac and Jesus were both escorted to their death by two men. Isaac was escorted to his death by two servants. Jesus was crucified between Two criminals. Interesting thing how those go together. Both Isaac and Jesus both carried the wood of their death on their back. Isaac, he carried the wood for the burnt offering on his back up the mountain on what must have been a very painful climb. Jesus carried the wood of his cross in which was a very painful walk. 
Number eight, Isaac and Jesus both willingly submitted themselves to the will of their fathers. We saw that Isaac willingly allowed his father to bind him and to put him on to the altar of burnt offering. Even though he didn't understand his father's will, didn't understand his father's way, he submitted to it. But if you look at Jesus in the um, Garden of Gethsemane, what do we find him praying in Luke chapter 22, verse 42? He said, If you are willing, Heavenly Father, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus doing the same thing, submitting himself to the will of his Heavenly Father. And saying, if there's any other way, I would be up for it. Number nine, Isaac's life was saved by God providing a substitute. And Jesus came to be our substitute. Isaac was saved by God providing a ram at the very last minute to die in his place. Now, what happened is we find that um, Jesus... When he comes, John the Baptist looks at him in the beginning of the Gospel of John, and this is what he says. Who is Jesus? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said, You know who that ram is, that lamb is? It's Jesus. Died for us. Number 10. This one you probably wouldn't have recognized. Both Isaac and Jesus both came back from the dead to get their bride. The very end of Genesis 22. We're not going to read that section, but if you look at it in your Bible, you'll see this little tiny genealogy in there. And you're thinking, this is a great chapter, God. Then why do you ruin it by giving us a genealogy at the end? Because genealogies are boring to read. Like, what is the purpose of this? Here's the deal. The genealogy actually is about Abraham's brother, Nahor, who married a woman named Milcah. They had eight kids. One of those eight kids, named Bethuel, has a daughter named Rebekah. The only lady sort of named down into that genealogy, just Rebekah. Who gets married to Rebekah in two chapters? Isaac. What is going on? God was preparing Isaac's bride long before he went looking for her. Mom and dad, God is preparing the bride for your son, the groom for your daughter, long before they ever go looking for them. And what happened was Isaac was brought back from the dead to be united with his bride. Do you see a parallel here? Jesus comes back from the dead to be united with his bride. Who is his bride? The church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, We are the bride of Christ, the church. What he is, came back from the dead for. Parallels. Now, I don't tell you all these parallels just so you can win at trivia crack. I know some of you guys like to pray that. Uh, but the reason I tell you all these parallels is because the early church was super encouraged when they saw what happened with Jesus Christ. They said, you know, this was not some kind of mistake. 
this was not a thwarting of God's plan. This was not God's plan B. This was what God's plan was all along. And we could see it foreshadowed. And we could see it played out actually in the Old Testament in miniature. And one of the great places we see it played out is in Genesis 22 with Abraham and his near sacrifice of his son Isaac. And hopefully you find that encouraging. Last thing. Let's go back to the text and finish Genesis 22. What does Abraham teach us about faith and obedience? We're going to see uh, the first point I want to take from outside of Genesis 22, the second point I want to take back from inside of Genesis 22. And this is the second time God speaks to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord said to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. First point we want to make out of here. My faith is, isn't what I believe. It is what I do. My faith isn't just what I believe. It's what I do. It's easy to say we believe in something as long as we don't have to do anything about it. Some people can say, hey, I believe in Bigfoot. Or I believe in UFOs. And you know what? It's easy to say that because do you have to do anything if you believe in them? No. And interestingly, what's happened over time is American Christianity has become just like believing in Bigfoot. It's become just like believing in UFOs. I believe in Jesus, but I don't have to do anything about it. It doesn't change the way I live. So it's easy when you don't have to do anything. But here's the problem. Faith that is in your head only, that does not come out in your life, will not save you on the day you stand before Jesus Christ. That is very important to understand. One of the reasons that God tested Abraham was so his faith in his head would actually come out in the choices of his life. And that's what confirmed his faith. That's what proves his faith is real, it's genuine, it's authentic, that it's saving faith. And God will bring trials and tests in your life and in my life so our faith will come out in real life, not just in our head. Because if our faith just stays in our head, I guarantee you on the day you stand before Jesus Christ, it will not have been saving faith. Now some long-term Christians hear me say this and you're freaking out right now. Because you're saying, wait a minute, Pastor Kurt, you know, I've read my Bible. I've read Paul. Paul says very clearly, we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. It's not by works at all that we are saved. 
Now you're telling me, Pastor Kurt, that it's what I do that determines if I'm saved or not. How can you mesh that together? You've got to be wrong. Well, let me say this. Are we saved by grace and by faith alone? Yes. I totally agree with that. But my point is simply this. Saving faith won't be alone. Saving faith will come out and be seen in the way we live our life. And if our faith does not come out and affect the choices we make in our life, it's not real. It's not saving. It's a sham. Let me show you two verses that many people think are, in, are contradictory to one another. They're actually not. Paul says this in Romans 3.28. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then James comes along and says this, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now these seem like they're totally contradictory. They're not. Read them in their context. Paul is talking about works-based righteousness when he says that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works-based righteousness is this. You get up in the morning, maybe you say something nasty to your wife, and you're like, oh, I messed up. So when I go to work today, I better do 10 nice things to try and counter that, to try and uh, to, like, have more good works than I do bad works. In fact, if you've studied Islam, you know that the uh, little symbol for Islam is scales because they say your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. So you do one bad thing in the morning, you better do two good things in the afternoon. So you balance the scale in the right direction. That's what works-based righteousness is. And the Bible says there is no such thing as works-based righteousness. That, you know, when we sin, we can't just put like something over top of it to cover it up. The problem is the sin is still there. The sin must be dealt for, well, dealt with. The only thing, way that we can get to God is if we are 100% pure, 100% holy, 100% free of sin. So any sin disqualifies us from being with Jesus, which is why works-based righteousness never works. Two deeds will never cancel your one bad deed. You happen to go rob from Casey's in the morning? It doesn't matter if you're helping in a soup kitchen all afternoon. You're still guilty. James comes along and he says something a little different. He says, now, James, he says, not that our works earn God's favor, but if we have God's favor, our heart will be changed and our life will be changed accordingly. Because all that comes out in our life is what is actually going, in, going on in our heart. Our heart reveals what is in our our, excuse me, our life reveals what is in our heart. Look how James writes about this. And you'll see how he ties Genesis 22 right into here. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. But you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. From this passage, do the demons believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord? Yes. But they're not going to be in heaven. Because while they know it in their head, it doesn't come out in the action of their lives. If you have a faith that is just in your head, that doesn't change the way you parent, that doesn't change the way you spend money, that doesn't change the way you spend your free time, that doesn't change the way you forgive others, that doesn't change the way you are gracious to others, then the reality is, if your faith doesn't change your life, you have demonic faith. The same faith as a demon, and it won't save you on the day you stand before Jesus Christ. The only faith that saves you is faith that changes your life. Now, do we live uh, changed lives perfectly? Absolutely not. Did Abraham live the changed life perfectly? Absolutely not. He messed up a bunch of times, which is why we go consecutively through Scripture. He had great days. He had bad days. But he repents and gets up and keeps going, just like us. So that's the first thing we need to remember. My faith isn't what I believe. My faith is what I do. That's the message from Abraham's life in Genesis 22. The second message, which is so cool, is this. Faith that obeys leaves a family legacy. Faith that obeys leaves a family legacy. Look at verses 16 and 17. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Then he goes on to say, because you have obeyed me. This is the first time the word obeyed is used in the Bible. And it is very clear that obedience to Jesus, or obedience to God's word always leads to blessing. And here's what is so cool. It leads to blessing not just for us, but it leads to blessing for our children and for our grandchildren and for the children that come after us in our legacy. How many of you here are parents that would love to leave a, less, a legacy of blessing to your children and to your grandchildren and to your great-grandchildren on down the line? How many parents would love that? Let me tell you how to do it. Obey God's Word even when it makes no sense. Be a man or a woman who lives by faith even when it costs you. Now, we don't have the exact promise that Abraham was given, but we do have the same principle that Abraham was given. That when we live by faith, and when we obey God's words when it doesn't make sense, and when it's hard, God will bless us, but not just us, He blesses our children and our grandchildren on down the line. Let me show you how this comes out. Number one, because He obeyed, what happened? says his offspring were going to be multiplied. They went from Isaac 
Jacob and Esau, then the 12 patriarchs, then the nation of Israel. And the scriptures say that all who look to Jesus Christ uh, and are made right by faith are descendants of Abraham. That's like a huge family tree, isn't it? He was blessed because of his obedience. Number two, his descendants conquered their enemies. This book of Genesis was written by Moses to help the Israelites when they came out of Egypt so they knew their history. But it didn't just help them with their past. It helps them with their future. As they go into the promised land, they were conquering nation after nation after nation. And they're going like, why are we so victorious? One of the reasons that you are so victorious is because you are descendants of Abraham and God promised to bless you as his great, 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 great grandchildren because of his obedience. You see how that happens? His obedience meant that his descendants after him, many generations later, would be benefits of his obedience. The same thing is true for us, folks. Our great-great-grandchildren are blessed by our obedience to Jesus Christ when it is really hard. So, when God's Word says to forgive others, we forgive, and does God honor us for it? Yes, but even better, God blesses our children, He blesses our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren and on down the line because of it. When we choose to live in marital roles that are biblically God-honoring, when a husband lives as the head of his house who sacrifices for his wife, and a wife submits and supports her husband's leadership in the home, and we live in that God-honoring way, God blesses the marriage, but he blesses your kids and your grandkids because of it, on down the line. Lastly, God said to Abraham that all the nations on earth would be blessed because of his obedience. This is really cool. Genesis 22, 18. And in your offspring, notice that is singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In other words, there would be one particular descendant of Abraham that would then bless all the nations on the earth. And it all grows out of Abraham's moment of obedience when God made no sense when he obeyed his word anyway. Do you know who that descendant is? Jesus. Look what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. This week, as we remember and we celebrate Jesus coming to die in our place for our sin and then conquering Satan, sin, and death, I want you to remember that part of this blessing that we have of full and complete forgiveness of sin and adoption as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ comes about as a blessing from Abraham's obedience in Genesis chapter 22, when God seemed to make absolutely no sense. Dear Jesus, I ask that you would help us to remember the blessings of obedience, the blessings of obedience that are not just for ourselves, Lord, 
Because even obedience may be very, very hard. But the blessings of obedience that cascade into the lives of our children and our grandchildren for generations to come. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.